All right, people of God, I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10. I mean, Acts chapter 9, I'm sorry. Acts chapter 9. I'm going to read uh, these verses in your hearing this morning. Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And there he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed, entered the house, laying his hands on him. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he arose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an open wall, opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were afraid of him. They did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him. And how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit... It multiplied. This is the word of God. Thanks be unto our God. Let's pray. Father, we need your help this morning. 
As all of us sit under the authority of your word, we need you to speak to us and teach us. And so I do pray, Lord, for these few moments as we look together at your word, that you would do that work in us by the power of your spirit through your word, that you would make us more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray, speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Humble our hearts this morning in your presence. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. In Romans 5, uh, verse 10, we read this. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. The man who wrote those words is the man in the story in front of us this morning. It is the man who came to realize that the gospel flows from the character of a God who delights in saving his enemies. It is the story of a man who came to realize that God's salvation is for those who have rejected him, rebelled against him, fought against his purposes, who tried to write him, in fact, out of their story. This God gave his son over to death, not to rescue friends, not to rescue those who loved him, not to rescue those who feared him, but to rescue his enemies. Don't get it twisted. We are not reconciled to God because we pursued him. We are reconciled to God because he pursued us, and that's while we were his enemies. The story of Saul's conversion is the story of a God who saves his enemies. And in that way, Saul's story is in truth all of our stories. It is the story of all of us who have our faith in Jesus Christ. And it's important, brothers and sisters, for us to embrace this truth, to acknowledge ourselves as former enemies of our King and our Lord. It would be easy, it would be easy to look at Paul's actions recorded in chapter 8, where he approves of Stephen's being stoned, guarding the garments of those who are murdering him, or the statement in verse 3 of chapter 8 where it says he was ravaging the church, or the statement in this chapter where we read of him breathing out threats and murder, throwing people in prison for their faith in Jesus. It would be easy to look at all those actions and declare to our own hearts, well, I wasn't that bad. I mean, I may have some issues, before the Lord saved me, but I wasn't that bad. In fact, pastor, I'm not sure the word enemy really applies to me. I mean, I wasn't persecuting the church. I wasn't breathing out threats and murders toward anyone. I wasn't sexually immoral. I didn't cheat or steal. I mean, I was basically a good person when the Lord found me. Enemy doesn't seem to fit the definition of the rift between me and God. Maybe there's a softer word, pastor than the word enemy. (laughs) My answer to you would be unequivocally no. Why? Because those issues that we think were not so big cost the father the life of his one and only son. And all our sins, small or great, is rebellion against our king. The Westminster Confession of Faith asked this question in, 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 uh, in the catechism, uh, question 84, shorter catechism, what does every sin deserve? The answer is every sin deserves God's wrath and curse both in this life and 
in the life to come. But listen to the scriptures themselves. In James chapter 2, verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point of it has become accountable for all of it. No, our sins aren't small. They are part of this whole mess of the brokenness of ourselves and of our world. We are enemies of God because of our sin, and we have to start there. We have to start by acknowledging that this is who we were. And if we start there, the glory of the gospel is that we have a God who delights in saving people who were his enemies. This is the story of Saul's conversion, and it is the story of all of our conversions. And so I would ask this question this morning, what does God's salvation look like in the life of his enemies? As we look at the life of the Apostle Paul, what does the life, what does what, what God's salvation look like in the life of his enemies? Well, first and foremost, brothers and sisters, it is a salvation that breaks our zeal. It is a salvation that breaks our zeal. In Galatians, the Apostle Paul speaking about this event in Acts 9 and his own actions, which preceded it, spoke about his personal zeal. He says, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. The apostle Paul was sold out for the cause sold out for what he believed was God's call, sold out, as he says in Galatians 1, for the traditions of his fathers. Paul was zealous. However, he came to realize that his zeal was misplaced. He came to realize that the call he was sold out for actually made him a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. These are his words that he uses to describe himself in 1 Timothy 1, Verse 13, as he thinks back to this same occasion, Paul's zeal, his pride in his own rightness had led him down a path that by his own words made him an opponent of God's church. You see, here in fact is part of the problem of humanity and our rebellion against God. The problem is that we think we are right. The problem is that we think we are right. And even more, we think that we are in the right. We think that we are basically good. And the problem with folk who think that they are right and who think that they are in the right is that they wind up doing what is not right. Our sin, as it comes to expression, manifests itself as trust, trust in our own rightness. So the question before us this morning is what breaks that faith? What breaks our trust in our own rightness, what breaks our trust in our own rightness. The Apostle Paul, speaking about the blindness of unbelievers, spoke these words in 2 Corinthians 4. He said, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
the one who himself was spiritually blind, was physically blinded on that road to Damascus by the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, whom he saw on that road in order that his spiritual eyes might be open to see what he himself describes as the light of the glory of the gospel, which is in the face of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The only thing that can break our trust in our own rightness and the unrighteousness that flows from it is seeing Christ for who he is as he is presented to us in the gospel. And the apostle Paul was rescued because God showed him his son. And every single one of us who were God's opponents, just as the Apostle Paul were rescued because God shined the light of his son into our hearts as we believed the gospel. I want to tell you this morning that we need our trust in our own rightness and the unrighteousness that flows from it. We need that trust broken. And the only thing that can do that, brothers and sisters, is the light of the gospel of the glory of God, which is in the face of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the call this morning to us is to be continually open to the Lord shining that light of the gospel into our hearts, into those areas where we are tempted to stubbornly hold on to our own cause. It is praying for God to humble our hearts to receive that light of his truth as it is shown to us in Christ. For Paul, it was his blasphemy, his persecution, his violence that needed to be broken. I ask you this morning, what is it for you? What is it for you? Where are you tempted to hold on to your own cause? Maybe it is in this area of forgiveness. Christ, in confronting the apostle Paul, extended forgiveness to him though he did not deserve it. Can I ask you this morning, are you withholding forgiveness from others, refusing to extend to them what God and Christ extended to you? Are you more concerned with your own rightness than you are with demonstrating the gospel? Can I just encourage you this morning to ask the Lord to shine the light of the glory of the gospel in that area of your life? to ask him to help you genuinely forgive from your heart, your brother and sisters in the Lord who have wronged you. And I'm not talking about accountability here and the need for accountability when we have harmed each other. The scriptures are clear about accountability, about dealing honestly with our sins, about confessing our sins. But it's also clear about us genuinely forgiving others from our heart. The apostles were not ready to receive Paul in verse 26, understandably so. They were afraid of him. But when Barnabas told them of his conversion in verse 27, they received him all the way to the point of protecting him from violence, even though he had done violence to their brothers and sisters. That's what forgiveness looks like. <laughs> looks like accepting those accepting those who have wronged us. So I would encourage you this morning to let the light of the gospel shine in your hearts and break your own stubborn zeal for your own cause, wherever that stubborn zeal is being manifested. Ask God through the good news of the gospel to shine in your hearts in those places and draw you out of your own rightness into the glory and goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen, people of God.
So the salvation that comes to his enemies comes as a salvation that breaks our own zeal and our own cause. But it also is a salvation that turns our former condition into a calling. What do I mean? Jesus sends Paul into the city of Damascus where he will be told what he is to do next. In the city of Damascus, there's a believer named Ananias whom the Lord speaks to in a vision, essentially telling him, go lay your hands on Saul so that he might recover his sight. The Lord, of course, has already shown Saul in a dream, someone coming and laying their hands on him for this very purpose. But Ananias has a problem. He's like, hey, Lord, you do know who this guy is, right? <laughs> like he's the cat that's been persecuting your church. In fact, the reason he's here is to throw your saints in prison. And you can hear the unspoken question in Ananias' words. You want me to go lay my hands on him so that he might recover his sight? And if it were me, if it were me, I'd be like, Lord, maybe it's not so bad a thing that he can't see. I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> but the Lord speaks to Ananias. And his words are what I want to drive home for us. He says this, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Don't miss what's happening here in the Lord's description of Saul's calling. The one who was an opponent of God, an enemy of God, is now being called to preach the gospel among enemies and between enemies. He's being called to proclaim Christ to those who are divided from each other. Listen to his audience again. He's to go take this good news, bear the name of Jesus to Gentiles and Jews, to rulers and citizens. A former enemy preaching the gospel among and between enemies. And that sounds about right, doesn't it? Sounds like the kind of thing God does, doesn't it? And yet, who better to preach the gospel among and between enemies than a former enemy? Now, you might be thinking that Saul's calling is unique. After all, he became the apostle to the Gentiles, while Peter became the apostle to the Jews. But the apostle Paul actually came to realize something about the very message of the gospel itself. And it's Paul who would later write about this gospel, this calling, indeed, that he was given. He would say this in Ephesians chapter 3. When you read this, verse 4, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. In other words, the very message of the gospel reveals the mystery of God of bringing Gentiles and Jews into the same family together. And so the one who was an enemy is now called to preach a gospel among and between former enemies, to call them into the same family together. And watch this. 
All of us who preach that gospel, we're former enemies. All I'm saying this morning is this. If you know you are a former enemy of God, if you know you are a former enemy of God, then it shouldn't surprise you that God calls you into the same family with other former enemies. If you know you are a former enemy, then it should cause you to embrace and love those who were former enemies too. The degree to which we are able to receive each other and act with love toward each other across all of the lines of division is tied to the degree that we embrace our status as former enemies. Saul, who had been an enemy of God, is now called to preach that good news that saved him among and between former enemies. Our calling is the same because we are preaching the same gospel that Paul preached. We are preaching the same gospel that says to Gentiles and Jews, to black, to white, to Asia, to Latino, to rich, to poor, the same gospel that says, come in Christ, you are a member of this family. Amen, people of God. Amen, people of God. We who are enemies are called to preach the gospel among and between former enemies. And the call here, the call here this morning is not that our sufferings cause us to shrink back from that calling. Indeed, the suffering that Paul was going to endure for Christ was only the beginning in the story in front of us. To not shrink back from this calling, to not shrink back from this calling to preach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who were former enemies. Amen, people of God. The church is a community of the former enemies of God. And how can we who are no longer God's enemies make ourselves enemies to each other. Once Paul received this calling and understood clearly the mystery of Christ and the gospel to bring divided peoples together, he went about the work of building churches committed to that gospel mystery. I want to say this to us this morning. That Sunday morning worship continues to be the most divided hour in our land speaks to our failure to preach this mystery, to to be open to receiving people with whom we were once divided. And I want you to hear me, New City. What we are doing as a church should not be unique. The idea that some of us are called to cross-cultural ministry flies in the face of the mystery of Christ, which Paul himself was called to proclaim. I'm not suggesting that every local church is going to be multi-ethnic in its makeup. Our history of segregating ourselves from each other has created communities where the diverse makeup of our nation isn't visible everywhere. This, however, does not mean that we can't preach and find other ways to practice this cross-cultural relationships that are going to be the makeup of the church in eternity. It is incumbent on us to preach a gospel that speaks to the reconciliation of the nations and to practice it in our actions. Former enemies who have been reconciled with God should not be found resisting that in the church. Amen, people of God. So let's be about preaching the same gospel that the Apostle Paul himself was called to preach, to take the name of Jesus to those who are not my own people, (laughs) because I was once an enemy, because I was once an enemy. I need to know how to embrace people who were also once enemies, who don't look like me. Amen, people of God. (laughs) Amen.
Lastly, it's a salvation that breaks our zeal. It's a salvation that changes our condition into calling. It's also a salvation that gives purpose to our suffering. Jesus says something else to Ananias about Saul that fleshes itself out in the story. He tells Ananias, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. As we read the rest of the story, this is, of course, what we see, right? We see Paul encountering persecution and suffering as he preaches Christ, whose work he at once tried to destroy. Don't miss the purpose Jesus gives, though, for Saul's suffering. Saul isn't going to suffer in general, the general suffering that comes on account of our sin, the sins of others, or living in a fallen world comes to every human being. In this life, we are going to suffer hardships. But what Jesus tells Ananias about Saul is that he's going to suffer for Christ's name. The suffering is connected to the calling that Christ gives to him. Saul is being called out to bear Christ's name to Gentiles, to kings, to the children of Israel. And the suffering for his name is going to come in that context as he preaches that gospel. And as he shares this gospel among and between former enemies, what is going to come as a result of it is trial, is hardship, is suffering. Why? Because some folk don't want to hear that message. Some folk don't want to hear a message that brings the good news of God's kingdom to Gentiles and kings. They love to hear a message about enemies being destroyed, but a message about enemies being offered salvation, it's a little different. But don't detach Paul's calling to preach this gospel from whom he is preaching it to. He's getting in trouble because he's telling folk that Christ is the king of a kingdom that includes their enemies. And so preaching Christ, when we do this, brings suffering. And everywhere Saul went preaching Christ, folk wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him for his commitment to the name of Jesus being proclaimed among and between enemies. And you can bet that this gospel will still get us in trouble today. It will still bring suffering for us today. But I want you to be encouraged this morning that everything you endure for carrying the name of Jesus into this world is not without purpose. God is at work to draw people to himself through the gospel about his son, and he uses the things we endure to do just that. Listen again to these closing words from our text this morning. Verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it what? It multiplied. It kept growing. No, brothers and sisters, our trials for Christ are not in vain. God will use them to continue to grow us up in the faith and to grow and mature his church. And isn't this just like God to give to former enemies the joy of participating in his sufferings in order that they might also share in his joy? And the call here, as I said earlier, is not to shrink back from our calling. Indeed, the suffering that Paul was going to endure for Christ was only the beginning of the story in front of us. Paul would later itemize some of his sufferings for the Corinthians 
noting in 2 Corinthians 11, he would say, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and toil, hardship, many sleepless nights and hunger, thirst without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of the anxiety of all the churches. Thankfully, (laughs) many of us may never know the extent of this kind of suffering, but we will know suffering as we proclaim Christ in this world. And so the call is to endure knowing that we are doing it for Christ's sake, for the sake of his name being brought to others, that they might be saved, or in the case of other believers, they might be built up in the faith. This endurance, of course, requires God's power. And so I would say this to to you this morning. Take your sufferings to the Lord. Lay your pains at his feet. Tell him about the things you are dealing with and ask for his help to face it And when the time is right to bring deliverance from it, notice that Paul didn't just suffer. He saw God's deliverance as well. So ask for the strength to persevere for the sake of his name and ask God for deliverance that his name might also be praised on account of that deliverance. Amen, people of God. The church is a community of the former enemies of God. How can we, who are no longer God's enemies, make ourselves enemies to each other? Remember this, brothers and sisters, you have been saved. You have been saved. Not when you were a friend of God. You were saved when you were his enemy. And if that's not cause to rejoice, then I don't know what is. You and I were enemies, but Christ reconciled us to God, and we've been saved through him. And this salvation, as it comes into our lives, the lives of former enemies, breaks our zeal and our own rightness, turns our former condition into calling, and gives purpose to our suffering. Praise be to God, the God who delights in saving his enemies. Amen, people of God. Amen.